The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. If you take your Bibles, please, and, and turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We're going to start reading at verse 17. This is God's holy word. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith, do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed or ignorant of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. So this last uh, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, I was uh, preaching at a little uh, Southern Baptist church in Jerome, Idaho, which is next to Twin Falls, and um, it's an old um, cow town, a lot of uh, ranching, and uh, therefore lots of Dutch people. I felt totally at home. And... um, but this little Southern Baptist church is reforming, and I had the delight to preach to them twice on Sunday, twice on Monday, and twice on Tuesday, and, um, and pray for Northridge Fellowship. It is, it is an amazing thing to see people gripped by the truth of God's Word, and then want to put it into practice in their local church, so... They already asked me back. I told them I'd have to ask Ariel. <laughs> but I will tell you this. There's nothing better than singing with you guys. This is a monumental sermon, not because of the content. but Hopefully it will be at least semi-monumental. But this is the 175th sermon in the book of Romans. So we're rapidly catching up with how many sermons we did in Hebrews. We will surpass Hebrews. So we are, we're in the absolutely glorious um, 11th chapter of the book of Romans. And it's been a few weeks since we've been in it. And so you might remember that um, the book of Romans chapter 11 actually opens up with a question. And that question is, in a sense, a natural question in light of everything that Paul had been saying 
basically from Romans 9.30 through 10.21. Here's, here's the question. Romans 11.1, 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? That's the question. And the question, I say, is a natural one because starting in chapter 9 and verse 30, all the way through 10.21, Paul has been laboring to show that Israel has actually rejected uh, God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, uh, if you want a summary verse, um, you can see at the end of chapter 10, wherever chapter 10 is, Verse 20, Isaiah is very bold when he says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Paul's applying that to the Gentiles. Verse 21, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And so here's this picture of Israel that, is, that has stumbled over the stumbling stone. That is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And in fact, they have, they have not only rejected, but, but the picture is God actually extending his hands out to them, pleading with them, summoning them to himself. And God says, I've done that. I've held my hands out to this, to an obstinate and stiff-necked people all day long. And so since they've continued to reject, the question of 11.1 is a natural question. So if that's the case, if they actually have rejected Israel's Messiah, if they've rejected the Lord Jesus, then has God in fact rejected them? And what Paul does in Romans 11 is he does a number of things, but he answers that question And he answers the question with a double negative. First of all, there's an implied no in the question. There's a way to ask questions in Greek where you can imply the answer that you want. I wish we had a similar thing in in English. But Paul asks the question with the implied answer, no, he's not rejected his people. But that's not good enough for Paul. An implied answer is not good enough. And so what he wants to do is he turns around and then he emphatically does what? Emphatically says, may it never be. God has not rejected his people Israel. Then what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to give, in a sense, twofold evidence as to why the answer to that question, as God rejected his people, is absolutely not. Exhibit one, Paul says, basically, God has a present remnant, even to this day, and I'm exhibit A. So you have to understand, this is part of Paul's argument. Here's how I know God has not rejected his people Israel. I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. He's not rejected me. So then what Paul does is he moves from exhibit A, first answer, to then exhibit B, where he basically is going to argue that God has always had an elect remnant of believers among Israel, and Elijah's day ends up being exhibit B. So that's verses 1 to 6, and that's his argument. But then he gets to verses 7 and 10. And 7 through 10, what Paul now ventures to do is Paul ventures to explain why there is so much Jewish unbelief in Jesus the Messiah. Now, I will tell you, and maybe you remember this when we went through the text, his answer is troubling. The elect remnant obtained the righteousness of God because they believe in Messiah, who is the righteousness of God. But the rest, Paul says, that is the rest of unbelieving Jews, were hardened. That is, they were hardened under, as it were, a judicial hardening by God as an act of judgment. Paul then turns around and supports that position with Deuteronomy 29.4, Isaiah 29.10, and Psalm 69.22-23. So, Paul gives an answer that is that is unsettling to us at first, but you have to understand that Paul is not looking at it in terms of under a microscope. He's looking at it in terms of the broad sweeping spectrum of God's work in redemptive history, all right? So the majority of the Jewish people at the time of Jesus 
rejected Jesus the Messiah, but God's not rejected his people. Now, to be sure, there's a partial hardening that has come upon Israel. And then what Paul does is he develops the argument in 11 through 15. Now, what's going to happen in 11 through 15 is that Paul is going to, to begin to show that he believes in both the present and the future salvation of Jewish people. Okay? Present salvation, God's always had an elect Jewish remnant. Okay? And in a sense, he always will. But for Paul, there's something about the, the present elect Jewish remnant that's small that is that points to something that's bigger. And that's what Paul's going to start to unfold. And so if you look at verse 11, Paul asks the second question. He says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? Okay. Now again, what do you think? He implied answer. No. Emphatic answer, may it never be. Right? So you have to understand. So Paul's now asking. So they stumbled for sure, but did they stumble and fall as to complete ruin? And the answer to that is absolutely not. And then Paul begins to explain why they have not fallen completely. But what he does is he ends up explaining it in ways that, in a sense, shows um, what, we, what we said was called sort of ricocheting grace. Okay, grace, so, so Paul's going to, in a sense, go back and forth between Jew and Gentile. There's going to be a little parenthetical thought there where Paul actually says, so I magnify my ministry. Paul was an apostle to who? To the Gentiles. By the way, very unlikely fit. Okay, tr- seriously, very unlikely fit. Paul would have been, Paul would have been the, the preeminent choice for the Jewish academic elite, right? But no, he sends them to dumb, hick Gentiles, all right? So here you, here you have one of like the most brilliant minds walking on the planet, and God says, okay, I'll just show you what, what I think is funny. You're going to be, the, you're gonna be Gentile, uh, Gentile apostle, all right? You're going to go hang out with people that eat bacon, Paul, And Paul says, so you know what I do? I magnify that ministry to the Gentiles in order to provoke my kinsmen to jealousy. In other words, as I'm out there preaching the gospel to Gentiles, oh, this has everything to do with our text today, which we will get to. (laughs) When I'm out there and I'm preaching to the Gentiles and I'm telling them about the kindness of God and God's covenant love and the glories of Messiah and the riches of salvation and Gentiles now are coming into the kingdom. I want Jewish people to look and say, hey, that should be us and provoke them to jealousy. And so Paul then what he does is the the passage ends up hinging on, on several words. So they did not stumble as to fall beyond recovery, did they? Now, what Paul does is he uses a series of words related to Israel like this. Their transgression, their trespass, their loss, their rejection. And then words related to the Gentiles, salvation, riches, reconciliation. Then he goes back to words related to Israel. How much more? fulfillment, acceptance, life from the dead. And so what Paul does in 11 through 15 and 16 is he he actually gives this big picture of Israel's future hope by showing that yes, Israel had indeed trespassed. They had transgression. Yes, they had loss. Yes, they they rejected Christ and then God to some degree rejected them, but not fully. And now as a result of that, what happens? Salvation comes to the Gentiles. The riches come to the Gentiles. Reconciliation comes to the Gentiles. And then Paul says, and once that happens, then it's going to bounce back. How much more? So when it bounces back, how much more? Lesser to the greater. Fulfillment. Fulfillment. 
acceptance with God, not rejection anymore, acceptance with God, and then life from the dead. Wow. Now, boy, I tell you what, if you can't get excited about the Bible, something wrong with you. To get to verse 17, and Paul's going to start, he's going to introduce this metaphor of the olive tree, right? Of course, the olive tree is the famous part of the passage. Um, But really, what's in view here is warning against the Gentiles, or to the Gentiles, against pride. That's what's in view. So he gives us a picture of this tree. And so the root of the tree is... You can think of the roots as, um, as Abraham or the patriarchs or the, 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 the patriarchal promises. And then the branches on the tree, which at this point are not specifically identified, are both believing Jewish branches and then engrafted Gentile branches. Now what follows in this olive tree imagery is most certainly the relationship between the natural branches and, and the, the wild olive tree branches, the branches that have been broken off, unbelieving Jews, engrafted branches, believing Gentiles. But the important part of the section is, is not Paul's view of olive trees. The important part of the section is the ethical section that warns against Gentile pride. So in verses 18 through 22, there are actually four commands. Verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches that were cut off. Second imperative, do not be conceited. Third imperative, fear. Fourth imperative, Behold, gaze, look upon the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, kindness, if you continue in his kindness. So what we did when we got to that text is we we looked at, we looked at, how the warning passages work. It's a warning passage, obviously. And then we followed it up with, what about those who quit the race? All right, and that kind of brings us up. Now we get to verse 23, and 23 to 27 is going to speak about Israel's salvation. 28 to 32 will speak about the glory of God's plan. All right, so verse 23, which is where we left off, And they, that is the cut off olive branches, they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. All right? So, notice what he says. Verse 22, behold in the kindness and severity of God, to those who fell, severity. But God's kindness to you, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And so they also, notice the way that it flows, if they continue, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in again. Now, the concern of Paul in this next section, really 17 uh, or or 23 through uh, 27 The concern of Paul is certainly going to keep Gentile pride in view, but now he's he's thinking about something else. Now he's thinking about taking those cut-off branches and engrafting them back into the olive tree from which they were broken off. Now that ends up being... Hugely significant. So notice the language. These also, that is the broken off branches, if they do not continue in unbelief, shall be grafted in. So make make no mistake, the broken off branches are the branches that have rejected Jesus the Messiah. Verses 17, verse 19, verse 20, 
They are broken off, verse 20, verse 23, because of their unbelief. And so make no mistake about it, the Jewish people who rejected Jesus are completely culpable, totally responsible for their unbelief and their disobedience. For Paul, it's, for Paul, it's not sovereignty or responsibility, it's both. Okay? Partial hardening, but you know what? Unbelief, trespass, rejection, uh, obstinacy, so forth. But here's the beauty of what Paul says in verse 23. Those that got cut off can actually be grafted in again. There's hope. There's hope. And so the very people that Paul loves, the very people that he said, I wish I myself could be a curse cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen according to the flesh, those people whom he loved, the Jewish people, he says they can be grafted in again provided they don't continue in their unbelief. It's an important qualifier, isn't it? It's crucial to note that if they are grafted back in, it will only be because they have repented of their unbelief in Jesus and turned to faith in Jesus. All right, so let me be as loud and clear and as direct as possible. Paul, nor anywhere else in scripture, ever teaches that there is some kind of saving virtue in simply being Jewish. If a Jewish person is to be grafted back in, it is because they have believed in Jesus. In other words, if a Jewish person continues in unbelief and rejection of Jesus, their destiny is exactly the same as Gentiles who reject Jesus and continue in their unbelief. Okay? So, it appears that what Paul is doing is he's dealing with a, with a Gentile assumption. And the church at Rome, by the way, would have been predominantly Gentile. And the Gentile assumption may be something like this. Well, you know, once cut off, always cut off. Which is sort of like the reverse of like, once saved, always saved. Once cut off, always cut off. Or maybe the assumption looks something like this. God's completely done with the Jewish people. Because they were guilty of killing God. By the way, you do know that for centuries, Jewish people by the Roman Catholic Church were accused of theocide, the murder of God. So you could have people that say, well, you know what? The Jews had their chance. They blew it. We're the people now. I mean, we are it. So we are the people of God. We're all that and a bag of chips, bacon flavor. Thank you. And uh, the Jews, God's done with them. Now, if that's the assumption, and it actually seems like there's, there is sort of an undercurrent assumption in what Paul's doing in Romans 11, then Charles Cranfield is absolutely right. He says, the Gentile church is not called upon to pass judgment on them, the cutoff branches, but rather to expect this miracle, they can be grafted in again with eagerness. Right? So in other words... Cranfield says, so if, the, if this is the basic assumption, it is so totally wrong-headed because Gentiles should actually be n- not looking down on the branches that got cut off, but actually eagerly expecting, hey, God's able to graft them back in. And then Paul says this, and it's absolutely wonderful. He says, for God is able to graft them back in again. Wow. Now, I would have thought that maybe Paul would have done something different. 
By the way, whenever you say, I, I think Paul would have done something different, or Paul should have done something different, um, you immediately get put into the idiot category, all right? Okay, now, you would think, you'd think that it might read a little different, right? You might think that it, it might read something like, like this. If they don't continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in because they're believing, right? They'll be grafted in because they're now believing. If they don't continue in unbelief, how will they be grafted in? By believing. And you you might think that that's what Paul would say, but he doesn't. Instead, what does he do? He appeals to his power. He says, for, so here's how they could be grafted back in again, for God is able to graft them back in again. Why, why focus on God's power, God's ability, if you will? Why? Because to turn a heart from unbelief to belief takes the power of God. You do understand that, right? So if you hear the gospel and you go from a state of unbelief to a state of belief, it's not because you had a good IQ. It's not because you had, you had some level of intellectual perception. It's not because you actually were good at accounting and you stopped to think about the pros and cons of this whole, this whole offer. If you go from unbelief to belief, unbelief in Jesus to belief in Jesus, you get there only one way, the power of God. Right? So Paul says, hey, God's able to graft them in again. But by the way, the idea that God is able is not just God has the sheer power, but God is willing to use that power. And that is consistent with his plan and his purpose. Now, you want a little hint on Bible reading? Pay really, 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 really close attention to these little words. Verse 24, for if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, here it is, how much more? How much more? All you got to do is just read through Romans sometime and just say, you know what, I'm going to highlight every time I read how much more. Every time Paul says how much more, it's a big deal. Right? It's a big deal. So the how much more, so this is, this is Paul's argument. So God's able, God's got the power, God is willing to actually graft them back in. And then he says, for if you, so the, follow the argument here. So he's talking to the Gentiles. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree. Okay? What's the picture? The picture is that the Gentiles are this this grove of wild olive trees, just growing here, there, everywhere. There's no rhyme or reason to how they grow or anything like that. They're wild olive tree. And Paul says, if God took you out of your natural wild olive tree, that is, you're you're taken out of where you were natively, where you belonged, and then you were brought over and then you were grafted in, notice his language, against nature, into a cultivative olive tree. So that's, that's the picture of Gentile conversion. You get plucked out of what is yours by nature, your native Adamic non-covenantal soil, and you get broken off there, and then you get brought over to this cultivative olive tree to which you do not naturally belong. And so Paul says, in a sense, you, by God's sovereign grace and power, were grafted into a tree into which you did not belong. Now, We should qualify the fact that what Paul's doing is Paul's not talking from the perspective of eternity and God's decree of election and all that. What Paul's talking about 
is Paul is talking about the flow, the course of redemptive history. He says, so if that happened to you, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back in to their own tree? Right? So you see how much more? So in other words, if God did this amazing thing, saved you goyim, okay? Saved you Gentile dogs, saved you outsiders, outcasts, strangers to the covenant, aliens to the commonwealth of Israel. If God actually took you from, from your, from your, from your heebie-jeebie Gentile families, and then brought you over and grafted you in to that, to that cultivative olive tree. That is an amazing thing. How much more do you think it is a reasonable thing for God to take the cultivated olive branches and simply graft them back in to the tree from which they came? Okay? That's his argument. Now, The how much more part, again, Charles Cranfield makes this comment. He says, if the Gentile Christian can believe that God has actually grafted him in to that holy stem to which he does not naturally belong, how much more readily ought he to believe that God is able and willing to do what is less wonderful, to restore to their own native stock the unbelieving Jews when they repent and believe. And so just think Think about it for me, with me for a second. When a Jewish person believes in Jesus the Messiah, they've come back home to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, to be sure, if they reject Jesus, no matter how much they call upon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is not their God. Okay? If you don't have the son, you do not have the father. Okay? Monotheism does not make you have God. All right? The three great monotheistic religions have absolutely nothing in common except for the fact that Jesus Christ distinguishes Christianity from the other two. All right? You don't have the father, you don't have the son. Okay? So nobody gets saved by virtue of Jewishness. But Wonder of wonders, when a Jewish person actually believes in Jesus the Messiah, they come back home to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When a Jewish person believes in Jesus the Messiah, the Spirit of God has worked in them to remove the veil so that they see Christ in the Old Testament. So Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 3, so to this very day, a veil remains wherever Moses is read, right? So they're blind, they can't see it. Now what's interesting is that Paul makes an analogy to that veil and says, just like Moses, when he came down from the mountain, actually put a veil over his face so that they wouldn't see the glory, you remember that? And so even today, now a veil's over their face so they don't see the glory of God in the face of Jesus in the Old Testament. But whenever the Lord turns them, Whenever the Spirit removes the veil, they see Christ. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, Paul says, there's liberty. So then we all, Jew, Gentile, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are transformed from one level of glory to the next. And so Paul's, Paul's point, in a sense, is, is that, boy, when a Jewish person gets grafted back in, the Spirit of God has actually lifted the veil and opened their eyes. When a Jewish person believes in Jesus, the Messiah, they're brought into a covenant that can really save them, not just condemn them. So when a Jewish person comes to faith in Jesus, the Messiah, they don't go back into the old covenant. They don't go back into the Mosaic covenant. They're brought into the new covenant. 
And that new covenant is what changes their hearts. That new covenant is what takes out the heart of stone and puts in its place a heart of flesh. That new covenant is, is actually putting a new spirit within us, writing his law on our hearts. As Gentiles, we fully partake of that new covenant by the grace of the Lord Jesus. And when a Jewish person believes, they don't go back to the Mosaic covenant. They don't go back to the old wineskins. They come in to a new covenant and receive the full and free forgiveness of sins through the blood of the mediator of that covenant. So we can say it like this. Since salvation is of the Jews, right? Remember what Jesus says to the woman at the well. Salvation is of the Jews. Since salvation comes only through a Jewish Messiah, the priority through the whole New Testament is to the Jew first. Is that not what Paul tells us at the very beginning of Romans? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then also to the Greek. Now, it's always a miracle when God saves a sinner, right? It's always a miracle. You know, in a, in, in a sense, when God saves a sinner, that is a bigger miracle than parting the Red Sea. Right? God can shuffle around inanimate creation, right, easily. The salvation of a sinner is a miracle of God. It is always, the salvation of a sinner is always the demonstration of the power of God. So, let's say, let's say you got saved at five years old. I believe God can save five-year-olds, all right? And let's just say in the, just in the simplicity of that little five-year-old just trusting in the Lord Jesus, that's a miracle of grace. Oh, but let's say you're not five. Let's say you're 85. Hmm. You do know that as a rule of thumb, the way you lived is pretty much the way you die. People that live however they want and think that somehow at the end they'll utilize that chance are fools. J.C. Ryle said there were two thieves on the cross, on, on either side of Jesus on the cross. One who believed so that we might not despair. The other who did not, that we might not presume. Okay? So, what I want to say, though, is to us, the 85-year-old coming is like, wow, it's absolutely stunning. Some of you remember George Nugent, right? He's like 83, 84, 85 years old. God saves this guy. Unbelievable. I was blown away. I couldn't, I, I, even to this day, I can't believe it. When I die, I'm going to see George Nugent in heaven. Uh, stunning, 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 stunning. Yeah? George wanted nothing to do with Jesus his entire life. And God saves him right at the very end. But let me say this. The same grace and the same power that saves a five-year-old is the same grace and the same power that saves an 85-year-old. Okay? It's not like God's thinking, okay, let's see. The five-year-old was easy. I don't know how I'm going to do this. This is 85. Mm, I don't know. Um, you might have run out of luck. I also want to say, it's always a miracle of grace when God saves any kind of sinner. Okay? So, some of you were very nice people. Okay, some of you are very nice people. But before you came to Jesus, your best friend was Mr. Legality, and you lived in the town of morality. Okay? And you thought because you were civil, respectable, that you were A-OK. And then God showed you weren't and brought you to faith in Jesus. Okay? The grace to do that 
is no more special than the grace of reaching down to somebody who has hit the lowest of lows and is a drug addict, selling their body out of their mind. When God reaches down and saves someone like that, it is the same grace and power as saving the nice guy. You know what that means? At the end of the day, if you're going to know Jesus, you need the sovereign power of Almighty God. If you're going to be a Christian, you need the sovereign power of Almighty God. Now, what, what do we make of that? Well, here it is. Nobody's out of the reach of the grace of God. Nobody's out of the reach of the grace of God. And so you keep praying. And, 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 and when, you, when you feel absolutely hopeless about that person, that son, that daughter, that mother, that father, that, that cousin, that, that person that you work with that's heard the gospel a thousand times, here's the reality. Because salvation depends wholly upon the power of God, nobody's outside of the reach of the grace of God. So you keep praying. Amen. You keep talking. You don't give up. You don't give up. Because God is able. God is able. Now, let me, let me close with, with this. Well, let, yeah, let me kind of close with this. All right? So here's, here's a picture of what Paul's saying. So imagine there's this, there's this family it's a beautiful family, royal family. And this family is just full of just love and faithfulness and joy. The father is, he's strong, but he's tender. He's loving, he's kind. And then lots and lots and lots of the children in that family reject his kindness and then leave. And he, he yearns for them to come back, and he stretches his hands out and calls for them to return. But they refuse him, they refuse his gifts, and they go off and they do their own thing. And so the father looks, and there's, there's the empty dinner table. And so what the father does is he goes out into the alleyways, and he goes out into the streets, and he gathers a family made up of street urchins and castaways and riffraff who have absolutely no claims whatsoever to the family inheritance except for this, the father of the family brought me in. Then the children start saying, that kid's sleeping in my bed. That kid's eating my ding-dongs. That kid's, that kid's sitting at my spot at the table. And then the father starts to draw those family members back in. And they start to trickle in. Paul's message is this. To the newer family members. Don't think for a second. He won't take them back. He will. And don't think they don't belong, because they do. So, as those prodigals, as it were, are trickling back into the family, the idea is welcome them back, because it's the Father who has exerted his power to bring them back. Next week, we'll start in verse 25. But let me just say, Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. There's a a mystery. We'll talk about that next week. But he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Why? So that you won't be wise in your own eyes. So as we think about this text and what it's leading us to, what it said all along, let me just make three or So, points of application. First, I saw you look at your watch. (laughs) 
37 years and this is how you treat me. (laughs) First, first point of application is this. Be afraid of unbelief. Be afraid of unbelief. Fight it. Wage war against it. It's deadly. And so what does that look like? That looks like me fearing anything that would undermine a humble faith. Notice I didn't just say undermine faith. I, be afraid of anything that would undermine a humble faith. Like what? Like pride. You go, well, you know, I mean, I've not, I've never like looked down on Jewish people. Um, but you understand that the pride that Paul's talking about is not just restricted to Jew-Gentile relations. The pride that can be in our own hearts, we can start to take, we can start to take pride in lots of things. And to have a proud heart is to have a heart that begins to chip away from the underneath of a humble faith. And so, since I'm over time, I'll just, get, I'll just cut to the meddling. We can become proud of the fact that we're reformed. We can become proud because we care about theology. Now, the answer is, we'll stop caring about theology. The answer is, actually, to care about it, love it, embrace it, and then realize that you are what you are by the grace of God. What do you have that you didn't receive? My goodness. Let me just say that Reformed theology is the most exhilarating, most biblical, most robust, vigorous mind-expanding theological perspective you could, you could possibly have. And do you know what happens? Is you can start getting a bigger and bigger head and you can have a heart that starts to shrink and shrink and shrink. And pretty soon, the pride in your own theology or your own confession or your own principles can start to become so egregious in the sight of God God, that that pride begins to chip away and crumble the foundation of a humble faith. So be careful. Be careful. There's lots of stuff we could put pride in. Be careful of all of it. I was preaching up in Jerome, and the pastor told me that there was a guy in his church who, at the, in, in uh, 20, 2019, Everything's falling apart, and the guy says, don't worry, pastor, we got God and Trump. (laughs) I thank God for the pastor who told that man, the only thing that matters is we have God. Okay? We take pride in the stupidest things, in the arm of the flesh, in the weak things of the world, in the pathetic things of the world. We take pride in even good stuff, and we exalt it, and we turn it, well, I do this, I parent this way, I do this, I do that, right? And the fact is, is that a humble faith actually stays utterly, completely dependent upon the grace of God. And so Paul says, no room for conceit among God's people. By the way, you know how you stay humble? You just realize that if it wasn't God who saved you and it wasn't God who opened your eyes and it wasn't God who actually actually rescued you, you would be well on your way to hell. Okay? That's all you got to do. If God didn't act, guess what? I'd be one of those losers on my way to hell right now. Next, and oh my. 
long for the salvation of others. And long for the salvation of the Jewish people. We should long for the salvation of everybody. Right? People that look like us, people that don't look like us. We should, be, we should be zealous for the salvation of people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. We should, be, we should be zealous for that. But there is also a sense in which we should be zealous for the salvation of Jewish people. Robert Murray McShane, in a sermon preached in 1839... It is true that Israel is given for a little moment into the hand of her enemies, but it is as true that they are still the dearly beloved of his soul. Should we not give them the same place in our heart which God gives them in his heart? Shall we be ashamed to be unlike the world and like God in the peculiar love for captive Israel? Hmm. And so, be humble, don't be proud. Know that it was a miracle of grace that saved you. And long for that same miracle of grace to take place in the lives of other people. I just want to say that if you're here and you're without Christ. And you feel like you're a castaway. You feel like you're an outsider. You feel like you're a street urchin. God in Christ has more than enough grace to bring you in to his family and give you a seat at his table as a son or a daughter forever. You turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Attach yourself to him in faith. Turn from your sins and believe in him. And you will find that you will be grafted in gloriously. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we do pray. We pray first for loved ones that are without Christ. Father, how our hearts break for them. We pray for their salvation. Show your strength and your power by bringing them to life. Father, we pray for Jewish people all over this world. Cut off from that olive tree. Oh, Father, we pray that you would graft back in Jewish people by the millions that they would look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn over him as for a firstborn and that their hearts would be fully turned to your son. Father, how we thank you for your word. We pray that it would run and be glorified today. Do its work in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.